Welcome to episode 15 of the Climate Vanguard podcast. This is a podcast series that tracks the progress made in setting up Climate Vanguard, a youth-led think tank developing radical transformations that overcome environmental breakdown and build a better world. We cover our ups and downs, successes and failures, you hear it all. It should also be noted that we publish every other Wednesday. This week, we'll be covering the multitude of crises ricocheting through the world right now. This is actually one of the functions of Climate Vanguard, particularly that we'll be pursuing on social media, is highlighting the compounding crises of our world. These compounding crises will only be intensifying as our life support systems continue to be eroded. And we not only want to highlight them, but illuminate their connection to environmental breakdown. We really see the need for such reporting because as previously discussed on this podcast series, traditional news sources are really failing in this respect to accurately account for the compounding crises and their connection to environmental breakdown. And furthermore, it's, I guess it's really important to have an honest assessment of the current state of affairs to understand where we are and where we need to be heading. So that's the, that's the reason that we're covering this topic this week. Lately, things seem to be moving at a blinding, intensifying speed. With the ongoing war in Ukraine, food shortages, the cost of living scandal, inflation, the emergence of monkeypox, the assassination of a Palestinian journalist, and at the core of it all, the continued acceleration of climate and ecological breakdown. We know it's heavy, and at times we do need to shut off and focus on our own well-being. But it's also so important to take stock and acquire a sober understanding of what is happening in this world. In this episode, we hope to unpack our planetary polycrisis by offering insights on how we got here, where we are now, and where we need to go. So we'll really structure this episode by covering three of the crises currently facing the world, but also some of the local contexts that Noah and I are in right now. The first is the cost of living scandal, monkeypox, and environmental breakdown at large to, to wrap up this episode. So I guess starting with the cost of living scandal, what's currently going on right now in the UK is that we're seeing an inflation that is now at 9%. According to the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, more than 250,000 households will fall into destitution, that's quote, destitution, as early as next year, taking the number of those living in extreme poverty to 1.2 million people. And this is in the UK. 1.2 million people in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We're seeing right now reporting of fully employed nurses relying on food banks. There are accounts of pensioners riding the bus all day to stay warm. Polls are now showing that one in seven adults live in homes where people have skipped meals, eaten smaller portions, or gone hungry all day just because they cannot afford to access food and have to prioritize other costs of life. And so all this is really due to this higher inflation rate that we're seeing in the UK. And the inflation is primarily due to supply shortages and record energy costs. And this is just a sort of description of this cost of living scandal that we're in right now. People in the UK are having to choose in large part between heating their home and eating. But now as people are having to spend less on general heating, there's still energy costs that have gone even higher as we move into the spring, into the summer and food prices that have gone even higher and just the cost of living in general has gone up. And so people are continually facing these challenging choices, these really impossible choices. And it's really been exasperated by high energy costs. So maybe Noah, if you wanna cover some of that. Yeah, so energy is really interesting to look at because the Bank of England came out with a graph recently that analyzed the causes of inflation in the first quarter of 2022. 
And they said that supply chain disruption, but also most importantly, increasing energy prices are primarily to blame for this cost of living scandal. I guess just also a note on the Bank of England as it relates to particularly this cost of living crisis. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the governor of the Bank of England, a notably conservative institution, has warned this past week in the UK of and this is a quote, apocalyptic food prices for the poor. Crazy. I mean that is bananas. Sorry, that was a bit of an interjection. You want to talk about alarmism. Yeah. The the governor of Bank of England is saying there's going to be apocalyptic impacts. Wow. And and like Jack was saying, this is not an alarmist institution. This is the Bank of England, the literal custodians of capitalist economics. He sounds like, that's some of the sort of that you'd hear in a a protest on the streets, you know, among activists, apocalyptic food prices. They're like, oh, is that Greta Thunberg? No, no, that's Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England. All right, as you were. Okay, so basically, as economies are recovering from COVID, there has been a surge in gas prices because there have been supply chain bottlenecks and growing economies require more energy. So what we've been seeing are increasing energy bills. And here in the UK, there's a regulator of energy prices, and they have increased the cap as to how much utilities can charge for gas and for energy. So they increased the cap from 1,277 pounds to 1,971 pounds per year. That is a 54% increase. So all UK households are facing energy bills that increased by half since April. And this is in combination with rising food prices. And even before the cost of living crisis, 3 million people in the UK were already living in fuel poverty, but this is only being exacerbated. In fact, recent statistics came out that said by October, an astounding 40% of UK households may have to choose between fuel and food. And again, this is one of the wealthiest countries on earth, and people are just being absolutely pummeled by these impacts. And this is the really obscene part, right? Is that the oil and gas companies, at the same time as energy bills are increasing astronomically are making record profits uk oil and gas majors such as shell and bp are amongst these so shell made 9.1 billion dollars in the first quarter of 2022 of which 5.4 billion went to shareholders (laughs) and 4.5 billion went right back into stock buybacks meanwhile bp made 6.2 billion dollars in its first quarter that's the highest in over a decade so It's absolutely astounding that at a time when people cannot afford to heat their homes or to put food on the table, when you have nurses who are relying on food banks just to scrape by, that you have the industry that is literally destroying our future cashing in. It's just insane. It's absurd. And I think that the thing that often comes to mind when we hear things like this, these type of mind numbing sort of statistics or that people say, oh, well, yeah, our system's broken or we just need to like tweak our system slightly. Actually, no, our system is not broken. This is what our system is designed to do. This is what capitalism does. And so anyone who's saying, oh, this is just like the, the system's really not operating optimally and we just need to tweak it and change it to make it work for more people, that's just not the case. I mean, this is precisely 
what our current economic system is set up to do. Yeah, this is exactly how it's supposed to operate, is that the wealthiest make more money whilst the poor and everyday people are hung out to dry. And the lack of a political response has been so shocking as well. As in, can we please have a windfall tax on these companies? They're making billions of dollars and people can't afford to pay their bills. And yet the political class, the ruling class, the Tories in name, have been so resistant to this. You, know, you have Boris Johnson saying that the route out of this is for people to work more. I can't fathom a more callous response from a politician. Yeah, we have this past week, Rachel McLean, a minister um, from the Department of Transport, proposed when confronted with this cri- confronted with this crisis of cost of living. She proposed that people should consider working more hours or just getting better paid jobs. <laughs> like, and this is also so representative of the world that we live in, this sort of psyche, this individualistic psyche, that the burden falls on the individual to figure it out. It's because individuals are not doing enough or not structuring their lives appropriately that they are in these tough spots and that we should not actually be looking at the systemic issues, the corporations, think about windfall taxes, because it's easier to just place the blame on the individual. And I think that everybody's mind is conditioned to think that way. It sort of makes more sense to people when these issues come up. Say, oh, well, people should just do more. Look at your neighbor. Are they doing enough? Are they, should they just get another job? And that really is plaguing our ability to deal with these crises. Yeah. We have another member of parliament, Lee Anderson, who said food banks are, quote, unnecessary because the leading cause of food poverty is not actual poverty, but lack of cooking and budgetary skills. So it's the same thing. You're putting the blame on the individual. It's saying it's not, there's nothing, there's no systemic issue here that's causing poverty. It's actually that individuals are either unable to cook and budget appropriately. And it's just such an out of touch and destructive frame through which to try to address this crisis is through individualizing it. Yeah, and we can't individualize it because we know it's systemic forces that are at play. Late stage capitalism continuing to sputter on after COVID and all the turmoil it brought. Now we have the wealthiest only increasing their share of income whilst everyday people are slipping into poverty on the order of millions in the wealth in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. Yeah. So we need a complete political revolution. And again, it's so essential for our listeners to understand that this is not some idiosyncrasy or some unique facet of an otherwise glorious system that has lifted people out of poverty. In fact, capitalism created systemic poverty. And we're seeing it again in its latest incarnation. It's really insane. I'm just thinking back at the numbers that you said earlier. It's really insane. I mean, the profits made by these difficult, oil difficult and gas majors, it's really, really hard to understand that you have, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, large swaths of the population are being put in very, very difficult positions where they're unable to afford energy bills and pay for three meals a day. Meanwhile, the fossil fuel majors are making record profits of $9.1 billion in the first quarter. And what are they making this money on? They're making it on the very substance that is killing the planet. Yeah. It's really hard to wrap your head around, actually. The level of exploitation is insane. They're making record profits off of literally destroying our biosphere. They're incinerating our planet. And then they'll be invited to cop again next year. And a big part for people is just to completely revoke the social licenses of these companies. Because they're charging extortionate prices that are causing people to go into poverty while at the same time, they're actively destroying our planetary life support systems. So what is the point of them? <laughs> I mean, people talk about tobacco companies having their social license removed. 
what these companies are doing is far, far worse than what yeah. tobacco companies have ever done. And when there are global conferences relating to global health, the WHO has conflict of interest where tobacco companies can't come to those conferences. Why is Shell at COP? Yeah. Why the fuck is Shell? Why the fuck is just the oil and gas industry there? In COP26, they were one of the largest delegations, outstripping countries that were severely impacted by climate breakdown. The entire system is basically set up to represent elite interests. Yeah. And we have to stop it because if we don't stop it, it's going to take us all down. So that's a brief overview of the first of these compounding crises that we wanted to cover that is affecting our local context where Noah and I are in the UK right now. And as we covered, I mean, the political response is so lacking laughable destructive and makes no real effort to actually tackle this crisis the second crisis we wanted to focus on is monkeypox monkeypox is a viral infection that is typically found in central and western africa cases tend to be small and isolated and also tend to stay in the domain of western and central africa however in the past it has appeared further field for example in the uk the first case was reported in 2018 However, we're now seeing the first multinational outbreak with 180 confirmed cases in at least 14 countries. And in the UK, there is now community transfer that is really puzzling doctors because people don't know where it came from and how it is spreading so easily. So the connection to environmental breakdown is really important to highlight. As it was seen with COVID as well, monkeypox is a zoonotic disease that leaped over from an infected animal to a human in the tropical rainforest areas of Central and Western Africa and was first identified in 1970. What the science has been telling us is that as we continue to destroy nature and as humanity expands into areas that were previously sheltered and devoid of any human contact, there will be more opportunities for viruses and pathogens to jump over into humans. And we live in a hyper-connected world where if that happens in one small area, in one pocket of the world, it could easily transfer over to a really bustling urban area and boom, you have another pandemic. We're entering into an age of pandemics if we do not stop destroying nature. So I think this is really essential to highlight is that monkeypox is likely not to be the next pandemic, but it's a worrying sign, but very deeply structural issue is that we're just obliterating nature and there will be repercussions. Yeah, we're coming off the back of COVID, which is ongoing. And we have this sort of warning shot of some other pandemic. And I think that it's really important not to see these as blips on the radar, but this is structural and this is going to plague our future even more as we move forward, as we move deeper into this age of chronic crisis. I guess just to put a number to that, there's a study that suggests that there will be at least 15,000 instances of viruses leaping between species over the next 50 years, with the climate crisis helping to fuel a potentially devastating spread of disease that will imperil animals and people and risk further pandemics. As we continue to degrade the natural world, as we continue to thrust further and further into wild spaces and come into contact with more species, we are risking the spread of viruses and viruses leaping between different species and to humans. And another way that the spread of virus is exasperated, certainly by the climate crisis, is as our climate continues to change and as ecosystems change, species carrying certain viruses will change habitats and come into contact with more humans, as is the case with malaria carrying mosquitoes in Africa. Their habitat will inevitably change as the climate warms and they will spread to other parts of the world. So that's another way in which the climate crisis is exasperating the spread of viruses and will continue to cause quite likely further global pandemics in the future. And it's just super important as we come off the back of COVID to keep the impacts of, of a global pandemic in our mind 
and really make sure that we're connecting that to climate and ecological breakdown. Yeah, I think the narrative has to be there in the public and it's not yet. But even if it was right, it's not like the people in power don't know this. They're just beholden to a system that is structurally driven to destroy nature. And they're going to continue stewarding and championing that system until they can. I, I suppose what's important is that once people understand this, once people understand that the people in power are fully aware and cognizant of these factors that are driving climate and ecological breakdown, you hope it builds a certain social tipping points and it just completely A, delegitimizes them and B, sparks some genuine uprising. What we face is unimaginable and the people in power are continuously making it worse. And the, but the people in power, I mean, politicians, economic leaders, people in the media, the ruling class. So that sort of wraps up the second uh, crisis that we wanted to cover, which is monkeypox and this kind of warning shot of another global pandemic. The final one, which is the most universal of crises, is the various symptoms of environmental breakdown that are currently being experienced around the world. Yeah, and lately there seems to have been some type of acceleration. We'll just cover a couple of the instances that have occurred. So first of all, in Africa, there is severe drought and hunger. In the Horn of Africa, 13 million people are suffering from severe hunger due to the worst drought in 40 years. In Madagascar, 1.64 million people are starving, including 309,000 children who are acutely malnourished. And this is, again, due to the worst drought in 40 years. So there is an incredible impact right now in Africa that's not really being reported in the media again. No, but it's something that the UN has dubbed the first climate-induced famine. Millions of people are starving due to climate breakdown. And then we saw in India, for example, a record-breaking heat wave before the summer months. This is crazy where temperatures reached 49 degrees Celsius in Northwest India and 51 degrees Celsius in Pakistan. And that was coming off the hottest March on record. First of all, you have to imagine what those temperatures are like. In fact, I can't imagine that because I've never experienced that, but it's absolutely insane. It's it brutal. You're testing the limits of human survivability. This is what we talk about when we, when we read about the impacts of climate breakdown, these sort of predictions and the actual impacts that are happening right now it really stretches the imagination beyond what we can actually comprehend. And that's probably one of the most pernicious parts of climate and ecological breakdown is that people cannot imagine the impacts because they are truly unimaginable. Yeah. And it's really, really hard to engage and grasp them when you're dealing with such incredibly severe and, and stark impacts. Yeah, it's There's just so far from what we've lived. How, how do I know what it feels like to live in 50 degrees? You I have to imagine a hot day like. that you've experienced. So say 30 degrees for a lot of us. <laughs> and then it's like know. 20 extra degrees. I mean, people can't really operate in that. The human body can only tolerate a certain amount of heat. And once you surpass that, your body goes into breakdown mode and it can't survive. But, you know, people have to still work and yet they face electricity shortages, food shortages, water shortages. It's just unimaginable suffering that these people have to go through. It's also probably important to mention the impact of such a heat wave beyond the immediate impact of the people living in India as it relates to, to food supply. We're already experiencing high prices and shortages of food due to the war in Ukraine. And now we have India, which is one of the global breadbaskets, experiencing record-breaking heat waves that are killing crops and you have to start to wonder about what the impact of that is and then also connect it to some of the predictions that come from, say, the governor of the Bank of England warning of apocalyptic food prices. The connections are pretty clear to see once you start to map these different crises. Absolutely. It's all interconnected. And just to reiterate the point, there was a study that came out that actually looked at the heat wave in India and Pakistan. 
and it said that this type of heat wave is a hundred times more likely due to the climate crisis and that this type of weather in fact used to be expected to happen only once every 300 years so every three centuries so it would have only happened once between 1722 and 2022. think of all the history that's happened in that time but now it's expected to happen once every three years this is what we're talking about when some of these predictions and scientific findings are really hard to understand and wrap your head around. You're like, well, I don't even know what that heat wave feels like. We're kind of yet to feel some of the impacts of it globally, certainly. And the prediction is that's going to happen a hundred times more frequently. It's really hard to compute that. These impacts are also happening in the global north. So there was a heat wave of extraordinary intensity in Spain with the hottest temperature on record for May, 40.3 degrees Celsius. And there was also a heat wave hitting the US. So we're seeing these impacts all over the world. Yeah, it's really hard to understand what this means and what this feels like if you yourself have not experienced that. I actually think it's also quite interesting from a personal point of view, and I think I speak for Jack as well, is that we're really motivated by these statistics, these catastrophic statistics, almost as a means to make sense of what's coming. But the eco fact, the catastrophic eco fact is not going to really prepare you for what is coming because yeah. we don't know what it means. In the book, Less is More by Jason Hickel, he describes this a bit in saying, our obsession with statistics is a means for us to almost relive what climate breakdown feels like before it happens, before the shit hits the fan, basically, and, and, and you can't really salvage that much. And I guess so it's a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism and also a catalyst for action. Yeah. Because you have to have some understanding of these unimaginable future impacts before they happen, because once they do happen, we will have wasted a lot of time. In fact, I don't want to say we're out of time, but we will have wasted a lot of time. And so it's important to grasp this as early as possible and preempt the impacts with action. So I think that that's some of the importance in doing what we just did on this podcast is actually making sure that we are acutely aware of all the crises, how they relate to climate breakdown so that we start to actually feel what this meta crisis is, yeah. what the crisis of climate and ecological breakdown is, because at times it's, it is easy in our world where we are insulated from the impacts in large part. However, we're seeing the cost of living crisis, which is in part due to climate and ecological breakdown. And we've seen flooding in the UK, all sorts of things. We've seen COVID, um, but still we're by and large insulated and it's important to always be awakened by the impacts of climate breakdown. I think that's a good point is that the statistics are really coupled with our everyday lived experience at this point. And we need to show a climate ecological breakdown is manifesting itself in all of these sub crises. It's contributing to a poly crisis, a world in crisis in general. And until we actually uproot the core drivers of capitalism and an imperial political economy, we're not going to be able to address them. And that's what's so important is that we have to be focusing on the structural origins. With that, to return to yeah. perhaps finish on a slightly more positive note as to what needs to happen now. We've covered three of these crises that are contributing to this global poly crisis. But as we've just mentioned, the utility in highlighting them is really to catalyze action and gain a common understanding of what direction we need to go in. Now, this comes back to our emergency response program. That's one of our content pillars is what can we do in the short term to really address this existential emergency? Really, one of the most fundamental things we have to do right now is to dismantle the fossil fuel industry. I mean, they are disproportionately driving global heating. Fossil fuel emissions account for around 89% of emissions, and they have plans to drill for more. We saw a recent report come out that said that the 20 oil and gas companies that nominally agreed to the Paris Agreement are planning $1.5 trillion in new oil and gas investment over the next 
two decades, at a time when the scientists said we could have no new oil and gas exploration from 2021 onwards in order to prevent climate disaster. Yeah, I guess just linking back to our two beloved fossil fuel majors that we mentioned earlier in this podcast, Shell has plans on investing $67 billion in new oil and gas projects by 2040. And BP has a similar $57 billion planned investment in new oil and gas projects by 2040. So we need to dismantle the fossil fuel industry, and that transition has to happen in the global north. The global north is responsible for 92% of climate breakdown, so the emergency transition starts there. In combination with dismantling the fossil fuel industry and alleviating this immense pressure on our planetary life support systems that are continuously belogging with even more emissions. So we have to stop adding even more carbon to the atmosphere. We're at a record level, not seen in the last 4 million years, approaching a level seen 50 million years ago. We have to stop. That would be paired with rolling out renewables and a whole societal mobilization, which is largely stewarded by the state, but also the public as well. That they understand that we're in an emergency and then we have to get out of it with really extreme measures that hopefully in the process build a better world. And by a better world, we mean a safe and stable climate where people can live dignified lives. That is ultimately the place where we have to get to and what has to anchor the struggle in the short term. Fire. Take me there. And just a reminder to our listeners, we mentioned this on our last podcast, but dismantling the fossil fuel industry will actually be the subject of our very first report when we launch in June. So look forward to that. That will be the first step to this emergency response that is absolutely needed amidst compounding crises. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you on the next episode of the Climate Vanguard podcast.